You're listening to the Echo Community Church Podcast. We have a passion for being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we hope this podcast inspires you to take another step. Let's join our pastor for today's teaching from the Bible. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read the entire book of Judges in the Old Testament from the beginning to the end? It's filled with stories of men and women and good guys and bad guys, people like Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Samson. You might have heard of some of them. Um, It's a really challenging, unsettling, and even disturbing read. It's actually talking about a period of history which occurs after Moses and Joshua, but before Samuel and David and the rest of the kings. And it gets its name, the book of Judges, from the name of different leaders who stepped up at different times to fight off enemies and to keep Israel preserved as a nation during this season when they didn't have a national leader. And the name of that role was a judge. So in comparison to the time of Moses, when all of Israel followed one person, In the time of Joshua, when all of Israel followed under the lead of one person, this book talks about what happened when Israel identified more as 12 tribes than one nation. So it happens after they've moved into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, and they are no longer wanderers in the wilderness. They're no longer nomads. They're no longer living out of tents and moving along on foot, conquering one city after another. They're finally at a point in their life and a point in their geography where they can settle down. So the book of Judges describes what happens when all 12 tribes fan out form their own borders in the part of land that God assigned to them, and they start taking care of their own tribes. They build permanent houses. They start learning how to plow and plant and condition soil and farm. Think about this. I mean, it had been generations since they had been farming land. While they lived in the wilderness, um, God sent manna every single day to feed them. They never learned how to farm. And so this is a whole new way of life for them, and it brought with it probably some some welcome things, but it also brought, brought with them some unwelcome things because they weren't really popular in this geography. So the book of Judges describes what happened in this period of history where the 12 tribes kind of handled life their own way, and it also shows us what happens when God's people time and time again started living life their way, not God's way. And if you've read the book from the beginning to the end, then you've discovered what I know too. And that is this, Judges is violent. It is gory and it's graphic. It's disturbing. It, if you were going to try and make a movie out of it, it would be rated R. You wouldn't want your kids to see it. It is filled with God's people doing all kinds of just sordid stuff, murder, scandal, betrayal, sex, rape, abuse. It is just, it's a really, really heavy read, and it, it could raise the question easily, is this even an appropriate book for us to study? Is there anything positive we can take from all of the stories? And that's really what Judges is. It's a collection of stories of God's people doing wrong over and over again in the worst ways imaginable. And the answer is there is some value in us looking at this over the next few weeks. We're going to look at a few of these stories, and here's what we're going to focus in on. We're going to focus in on the warnings that Judges has for you and I today, because the truth of the matter is I am no better 
than the fallen people in this story. We are no better than Israel. Those of us who consider ourselves to be Christians today, we are no less likely to ignore or abandon God's commandments over our lives than the Israelites were. We live in a day and age where Christians have strong feelings on a lot of stuff. And our strong feelings oftentimes don't line up with God's feelings. But when we feel strongly about something, whether it's politics, race, morality, entertainment, money, wealth, revenge, parenting, I find that people will elevate, especially people of faith, constantly elevate their strong, passionate feelings about something above and beyond the Word of God, even if the Word of God opposes their strong feelings. And the book of Judges warns us that when we live that way, we're setting ourselves up for trouble. And so there's a lot for us to gain in looking at the stories of what happens, what is the end result of abandoning God's way and God's leadership in your life and sinking back into self-leadership and self-governance. The second reason why we need to read Judges is really very simple. It just proves why we need a Savior. Because in this book, Israel constantly does evil and then cries out to God to bail them out of the mess they got themselves in. And every time they cry out to God, as mad as he must be about their sin, he delivers them. And then after a while, the cycle repeats. Israel gets comfortable. They start trusting their feelings again. They start finding all kinds of new ideas from other tribes and the culture around them that they like better than God's way. And if they find themselves in trouble again, they call out to God again, and God delivers them again. And what we learn is that at no point do the Israelites no longer need a deliverer. They're constantly needing someone outside of themselves to deliver them from the mess they made themselves. And what they need is a savior. And what you and I need is a savior. No matter how much hard work, how many TED Talks, no matter how much effort we invest, at some point, we're going to recognize that even in spite of our best efforts, we are still broken and we can't self-repair and we can't control our life the way that we want it to go. We can't, we can't find a purpose and a meaning and an identity that's durable and we need a savior. And Judges reminds us over and over again that mankind needs a savior. And thank God I have found that savior in Jesus Christ. So let's just look into this first story. I'm not going to touch on every single judge and every single story within this book. I want to leave some meat on the bone the next time we come through Judges. But I'm going to start in Judges chapter 4 and 5 with the story of Deborah. And again, what you need to recognize here is that this is a time when Israel didn't have a strong national government. It was a tribal system. Every one of the 12 tribes had their own network of leadership. And most, what we see most commonly is that they didn't have a president. They didn't have a general. Each tribe had a judge. And we learn the stories of the different judges that God used to resolve disputes, to make decisions, to pull together a military when they needed it. That's what's going on in Judges. And that's why every time you read a story, one of the judges will find out which tribe they were from. It's almost like Israel had 12 different states, so to speak, and every state had their own little governor. And the governor was the man or the woman who was called upon to make decisions for their tribe. Deborah, who we'll read about in a second, was one of the judges. Not all of the tribes are equal. 
Some had really nice land that was easy to farm. Others, um, like we'll read about, like Gideon's tribe that we'll read about next week, his tribe had really rocky, stony, difficult land to farm. Some had really good uh, armies, really strong soldiers, and others not so much. And the one thing they did do was, even though each tribe was kind of looking out for themselves, if one of the tribes was under attack, you could call out to your neighboring tribes and ask them to send military, and they bound themselves to one another as tribes by saying, if your tribe needs us, we'll be there for you, and vice versa. So we see that play out in this story. Let me start in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. After Ehud's death, here's the phrase, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. The Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. You will see that sentence, I don't know how many times in the book of Judges. It's almost like every time we see a new character, the circumstances around which a new judge comes to light is because Israel did evil. So what happened from their, as a result of their evil? Verse 2. So as a result of the, the evil they did, the Lord turned them over to King Jabin, a Canaanite king. The commander of Jabin's army was a man named Sisera who had 900 iron chariots and he ruthlessly opposed the Israelites for 20 years. And then after 20 years of being bullied and dealing with these terrorists and these guerrilla attacks against them, Israel cried out to the Lord for help. So let me pause just for a second to make sure you're following with me because I want you to sink into this story. King Jabin is the bad guy. He's the Canaanite king, and he opposed God's people. The Canaanites worshipped Baal. They were foreign god worshippers. They did not worship the God of Israel. They did not worship the true God. But they were the original inhabitants of the promised land. And when Israel moved in, they kicked Canaan out, or at least they pushed their boundaries back. And Canaan did not want to let go of this land so easily. They believed it belonged to them. And even to this day, you still have people from all over the world, all kinds of religious groups who all lay claim to the land where Israel is today. And so King Jabin, uh, his tactic is to pick on one of the weaker tribes of Israel, one that didn't have a strong army, the tribe of Ephraim. And he used his general Sisera. And the Bible records for us a detail that might not mean much, but I want to make it mean something to you, is that he had 900 iron chariots. You need to know that having 900 iron chariots was a huge, huge advantage when going up against Israel because Israel did not have an advanced army. They did not have advanced weapons. They did not have iron chariots. They didn't even use chariots at this point. What we know Israel had, they had swords and they had slings. And they're weapons, but they're really only good for short-range hand-to-hand combat. So you would not pick a fight with a person in an iron chariot if all you had was a sword and a sling. It's the ancient equivalent of bringing a knife to a gunfight, so to speak. And so this was a huge advantage. And uh, Israel knew they were in trouble, or at least Ephraim, the tribe, knew they were in trouble, knew they were no match. And over 20 years, whatever efforts they were making to fight off Sisera were not succeeding, and they were very vulnerable to defeat. So verse 4, Deborah, the wife, of, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. Pause again. Here's how highly the Bible speaks of Deborah. She was two things, a prophet 
and a judge. She served a dual role. There's nobody else in Judges we see that served those two roles. Normally, those were two separate people. You had a prophet, and the prophets, specifically their role was God would speak to the prophet individually and out loud, and then ask the prophet to relay that word to the people. That's how people in Israel at that time heard from God. They didn't hear from him personally. They heard from him through a third party, through an intermediary called a prophet. So Deborah was that person. But simultaneously, she was also a judge, and it was very uncommon for a woman to hold that role. And it just speaks to how highly uh, revered she was, how respected, how holy, how close to God she walked, how strong and courageous and trustworthy she was. She was kind of the woman of all women. She was a leader above all leaders. She was a, she was really somebody to look up to, a real true hero and strong woman of God. She, verse 5, would sit under the palm tree between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Benoam, who lived, uh, 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 I'm sorry, in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. In other words, they, if they had an issue, if the tribe had an issue, if two people weren't getting along, they'd go to Deborah, tell her the problem, and she'd resolve it uh, right then and there. So really strategic mind, very wise, uh, very godly woman. One day she sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the tribe of Naphtali. And she said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribe of Naphtali and Zebulun and take them to Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. So here's what Deborah is doing. She's doing just what I described to you earlier. She recognizes she needs help. She knows that her military, she's wise enough to know I'm in a battle that I can't win by myself. I need to call on my tribe, my community, my brother and sister. I need to call on my neighbor for some help. And so she kind of puts out the bat signal and says, Barak, I need your help. I need you to gather up people from your tribe and from Zebulun, and I need you to bring the full quota. We need 10,000 soldiers. But not only does she call for help, she actually gives him a strategy and instruction. So she's functioning as a judge first. Hey, judge to judge, I need some help. But now she's going to be a prophet too. She says, God's given me a strategy. I want to use you as bait. I want to send the, you and the 10,000 soldiers up on top of Mount Tabor, which is this beautiful, picturesque mountain surrounded by lush valley. If you see pictures of it today, you can go on YouTube and look at it. It's gorgeous. Um, she's like, I want to send you up there, and then I'm going, to send, I'm going to tip off Sisera's army. We're going to give him some intel that says three tribes worth of military are up on top of a mountain. And we're going to use you as bait to lure him into the valley. And once he and the 900 chariots get into the valley, I will give you the signal. And then you can swoop down and God's going to give you the victory. And Barak responds to this. And he responds with something right and something wrong. Let me read you his response. Verse 8. Barak told her, I will go. But then he adds a caveat. He puts a condition on it. He says, but only if you go with me. Now, to a Western reader like me, I'm missing out on kind of what's going on here. And Deborah rebukes him for saying this. She chastises him. She scolds him. She corrects him. And I'll read her response in a second, but here's what he's really saying. What he's saying is, Deborah, I hear your strategy, and I know you're a prophet. I know you're giving me God's plan. But I'm looking at this plan, and I'm thinking, this isn't a very good plan. 900 chariots against our 10,000 men. I don't care what God says. I don't, I'm not confident. I don't have faith to believe that that plan will work. So I need a guarantee that it's going to work. 
And Barak knew that because Deborah was a prophet, if Deborah would be physically present with him on the battlefield, God, it's almost like he sends a safety shield around his prophets, like a safety bubble, like a cloak of invincibility. And he knew that if Deborah was there physically, God would never allow the Canaanites to defeat his prophet. God would never allow himself to be embarrassed or never allow himself to be shamed that way. So basically what he's saying is, Deborah, I, you know, I need you to be my security blanket. Um, I, I don't have enough faith to believe that God can deliver me without you being there. So here, so what he's really saying is, I have weak faith. <laughs> and here's what Deborah says. She says, very well, I'll go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will come at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and there Kadesh called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him, and Deborah also went with him. So that's kind of where that part of the story ends, and there's a chapter and a half of the details of the battle. I won't read through the whole chapter, but let me summarize it for you. Here's what happens next. Barak does exactly as Deborah asks. He leads the 10,000 men up on the top of the mountain, and then Deborah does exactly what she said she was going to do. She tips off Sisera and lets him know that there is an opportunity for him to swoop down and wipe out all of the military at one time. And so Sisera is like chomping at the bit. This is the opportunity he's been waiting for. And so he marshals his 900 iron troops and they race into what we know today as the Valley of Jezreel by the Kishon River. And as his, his uh, chariots fill that valley and as they gain speed for the ascent up Mount Tabor, he, he, he falls into a trap that he didn't see coming. You see, what he didn't know and what we didn't know, but what Deborah knew and what the Lord knew was that that valley one time a year, it floods. And when it floods, it turns into a muddy, boggy marsh. And what the book of Judges tells us is that when those 900 iron chariots raced into the marsh, they literally got stuck in the mud. The wheels stopped spinning. The horses couldn't pull them out. And the Lord sent a panic over the entire chariot division of Sisera's army, and they began to absolutely lose their minds. And in this state of confusion, where their uh, chariots have essentially turned them into an immobile sitting duck, Deborah gives the word to Barak that now is the time to swoop down in an attack, and God will give the victory to them. And now... The whole odds of this battle have turned. The Vegas odds have gone from the Israelites being a heavy underdog to being an overwhelming favorite because now it's 10,000 armed military against the 900 trapped, you know, bogged down, quick sanded in Sisera's army. And so, you know, had Barak had enough faith, he'd be rolling down the mountain into an absolute, you know, an absolute breeze of a victory. Um, that he rolls down the mountain with his army, and the Bible tells us they wiped out, they killed 899 of the 900 um, soldiers of Sisera. Only Sisera himself escapes. And uh, Barak, after he's done uh, cleaning up the battlefield there, notice, you know, they're counting heads and looking for Sisera, and they don't find him, so Barak starts tracking him down. Well, Sisera had a pretty good head start, and so he's He's limping away from the battlefield, and he's trying to find a safe place to hide out. And he's no dummy. Cicero was a really successful general. And so he knows if he's going to find a place to hide out, he's not going to find an Israelite place to hide out. He's going to look for um, an ally somewhere, and he thinks he sees one. He sees what appears to be 
you know, of foreigners, a Canaanite settle, Canaanite settlement, you know, a Canaanite home. And he rolls up to the house and uh, he asks if he can take refuge there. And, you know, the, the, the wife of the house welcomes him in and tells him, yes, we, we'll, we'll feed you a good meal. And why don't you lay down in here and take a nap and we'll take care of you. Little did he know the woman whose name was Jael, even though she didn't look so obviously, she was an Israelite. She was an Israelite who chose to marry outside of Israel and marry a foreigner. And because of that, um, she didn't give off any context clues that, that she was an enemy of his. But the Bible tells us she hated him. She hated what he was doing to her people for 20 years. So she waited till he fell asleep. And then in a violent rage, she takes a tent stake. And she kills him with the tent stake. Not only does she kill him... The Bible gives us detail. She impales him. The tent, she drives the tent stake into him so hard that it goes out the other side of him and into the ground. Now, I'm sure that's not just one swing of the hammer. She must have so much rage that she strikes that thing enough times. It goes through his body. It's very violent. It's very gory. It goes through his body in, in one side, out the other, and sticks in the ground. Well, sometime later, I don't know whether it's hours or days later, Sisera tracks the trail of, I'm sorry, not Sisera, um, what we're not going to edit this out. What was it? And Barak tracks Sisera's trail to JL's home. And he kind of knocks on the door, I guess. And he says, hey, I'm looking for this guy and describes him. Have you seen him? And JL, I guess, just says something effective. Yeah, here's his dead body and produces it and shows it to Barak. So she's the one who gets the glory and the credit for killing the mighty Sisera, not Barak. And the footnote the Bible gives us is that this eventually led to the defeat of King Jabin and the tribe of Ephraim enjoyed peace for 40 years until the next time Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what in the world are we going to do with this story? It is it's really pretty messed up. I mean, it's exciting and all, but it's not the easiest story to make a light devotion out of. Let me just suggest a few things for you to think about, just a couple things real quick. Please know that the Israelites brought all of this trouble on themselves. And I want to balance this out by saying that the more mature you become in Christ, uh, the easier you will be able to discern the origin of the trouble you're dealing with. Every one of us could probably think of something right now that's driving us crazy, something that's causing us trouble. And sometimes the trouble in our life is simply the result of a fallen world. It's what I would call trouble that is common to all of us. We live in a fallen world, in an evil, a world where evil exists. And as a result of that, life's just going to bring some difficulties to you and I that we didn't ask for, um, that we might not have caused directly, but it's just part of life. And in those moments, um, you know, we don't, <laughs> repentance is not necessarily a solution. We need stick to we need faith, we need courage, we need long-suffering, we need hope. Um, but the circumstances here in this story are not the result of just common evil. The Bible says they were the direct consequence of Israel's sin, and their specific sin was that they turned, they turned away from what they knew was right, and they replaced it by, by living by their own strong feelings. In other words, they knew better. They knew better, but they didn't do better. And so let that sink into your heart today, is there some area of your life 
or some recent failure in your life that you haven't repented from, that you haven't turned from, that you haven't brought correction to, that could possibly have opened up the door for some of the trouble that you're currently experiencing. The good news is then after, even after 20 years of their stubborn hard-heartedness, when the Israelites finally broke down and cried to the Lord for help, he answered them and he heard them. And I want you to remember one thing that Judges tells us is that we're never too far gone. We're never too messed up that God won't respond to our cries for help. Another thing I see here is that many times God's going to ask you and I to take a step of faith and obey him, and he's not going to give you all the details in advance. He's not going to guarantee you how it's all going to work out. He's not going to give you every proof that you need. He's not going to fill in every question that you have. He's just going to ask you to trust him and to show him how much you trust him by just saying that by just saying his word or his direction or his guidance is enough for you to act on whether it's a career change, a relationship change, a change to your budget, a, a, a simple act of forgiving somebody or having a tough conversation with somebody. I'm sure you know that there's been a time in a life where God has challenged you and encouraged you to take some type of a step and you hesitated because you were afraid that it would, you were afraid it wasn't going to go well. You didn't know how it was going to pan out. And what we see in this story is that lots of time we're going to ask God for a guarantee, but that's, an, that's weak faith. Strong faith is like Deborah's faith. God said it, and I know God said it, and I know God's character, and that's enough for me. And then finally, it's important for God's people to always help each other in times of battle. A really, a really high moral thing that I see in this story is how quick God's people were to help each other out when they really needed it. You know, Deborah, as wise as she was, she was humble enough to recognize I'm in a situation where I'm over my head. There's not a YouTube video I can watch to fix this. I can't just grit my teeth and tunnel through this. If I'm stubborn here and think that we're going to be able to fight this battle on our own, we're going to lose. I need to just humble myself and ask for help. And friend, I want to tell you, there's no shame in asking for help when you need it. It's actually an act of wisdom. It's going to benefit you, and it's going to release fulfillment and joy in the life of your neighbor who, who gets a certain sense of satisfaction and love and fulfillment when they're able to release help into your life that they're able to give. And then on the other side, Barak was willing to risk his life and to put his life on the line to help his neighbor. She was doing more than asking him for, a, for a, a cup of flour for some help cutting the grass. She was asking for Barak to put his life on the line to defend her tribe. And he was willing to do it. Yes, he was imperfect. Yes, he was flawed. Yes, he had weak faith. But man, did he, did he have his tribes back when they needed it? And guys, listen, there's stories all through our news feeds of people who don't know Jesus who are quick to help people in need. Man, there's all kinds of people in this world who aren't people of faith. And they're generous, and they're good neighbors, and they do incredible acts of self-sacrifice. You see, Christianity doesn't own the market on being a good neighbor and helping one another. You don't have to follow Jesus to know how to do that. But if you follow Jesus, and if you're a disciple, then you're part of a community. You're part of, you're part of a new family. And in God's community, it is non-negotiable. Brothers and sisters have each other's back. Brothers and sisters will inconvenience themselves, and they will, put, they will endanger themselves in, out of willingness and out of loyalty and out of love and compassion to help our brothers and sisters. And I want to challenge you. Be helpful. Don't make people have to beg you 
to help them. If you have the capacity to help a brother and a sister, then help them and do it generously and do it obediently. The Bible speaks to us about bearing one another's burdens. What that's saying is, until I've been inconvenienced, I haven't really been burdened. And if you're my brother or you're my sister, then what I want to do is I want to take on some of your weight, some of your inconvenience, some of your debt, some of your cost and your trouble in order to be with you and to be there with you through a time of battle and help you move forward. So that's what I see in this story. There's a lot of other things there. But, you know, my challenge to you is to ask you a couple questions. Do you need to repent of some stuff in your life? Do you know better, but you're not doing what you know is better to do? What are the things in life that you shouldn't be doing that disappoint the Lord where you're absolutely living in sin, things that you've neglected, things that you have withheld, or these other secret areas of our heart? What are the things of your heart that you need to lay down? And I'm encouraging you to cry out to God to deliver you, and he will. I don't want you to keep heaping trouble upon yourself in that way. Same time, I also, you know, I want to challenge you. Do you need to ask for help today? Swallow your pride and ask for it. There are some battles that are best fought together. Don't fight that battle in isolation. And then finally, has someone asked you for help in a way that you can step up? I want to encourage you to say yes to that today and be promiscuously generous with your help towards them. That's the end of our sermon today from the book of Judges. Next week, we'll talk about the next judge in our lineup, and that is the story of Gideon. So God bless you, and I pray that this has value and meaning to you today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Echo Community Church podcast. If today's message impacted you, or you want to talk about one of the topics we discussed today, email us at info at echochurchmd.com. We would love to connect with you online. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching our church name, Echo Community Church. Send a message or leave a comment to at Echo Community Church and let's continue the conversation. And if you live locally in Baltimore County, Maryland, we invite you to our Sunday worship experience. You can find out more on our website at echochurchonline.com.